Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and all of the interactions, both inside your company and outside your company, to turn your company into a value-focused culture. Today, I am thrilled to have an old friend, Alvin LeBourgeois, who uh, I was a consultant with at the uh, the big consulting firm, and uh, he hired me a lot to for to help him with deals that he won. So, Alvin, really. I'm thrilled to have you here. Welcome. Oh, Mark, it's just a privilege to be with you and spend time with you. And as I've seen and seen you uh, work diligently on this project and have such passion about it, and I know we've had many long conversations and meals and cocktails (laughs) discussing the concept of value and the importance of it being embedded in some culture and how it gets carried out in execution. It's just wonderful to see your book published. And, and seeing it be received so well in the marketplace. Yep. So we have both graduated from uh, Miller Hyman and uh, I'd love to just have, have people understand what you're up to now and, and where you've taken, where your journey has taken you and what you want to do for the next, the next, it's not what you want to do when you grow up, it's what you want to do next. So let's hear about that. Good point, Mark. Yeah. You know, it's really been interesting. I did take a bit of a sabbatical just to kind of unplug and make sure that I could clean sheet some perspective around how I might make a difference, how I might make a contribution um, to the world of selling, which I'm very passionate about. And over the last uh, couple of months, I've, I've gained some clarity, if you will, around Uh, this notion of what I really want to do is equip growth oriented leaders with bankable confidence in their commercial strategies. And, um, and I'm, I'm partnered up with a number of other uh, uh, colleagues um, and a couple of new ones. And and our aim is really to equip these growth oriented leaders uh, by providing some expert development of all these critical selling rituals, value-based messaging, impactful leadership rhythms, um, and implement that through some rich uh, enablement tools, primarily ones that sit natively in salesforce.com so people uh, can really make that uh, platform a more competitive advantage for themselves versus a data entry repository. Anything you want to share about what some of those tools are and do? Well, you know, it's it. What we find in a lot of organizations is a lot of siloing, um, and I'm sure, and I've read about this in your book as well. But the notion of getting sales and marketing and product kind of all aligned to some extent. Many of them are developing, um, I'll say, uh, separate paths or perspectives to the customer, and the notion of uniting the three of those to leverage the research and perspective that marketing has, the, the, you know, the feeds and, and speeds of all the product gobbledygook that <laughs> that group puts together, and, and, and then not having sales sit in isolation from those two things with its own methodology and its own process that doesn't weave all of that together. So we're really 
looking at not only combining those three in our engagements with clients, but really taking on what we're really referring to as an agile approach to methodology. You know, uh, obviously, given the pandemic and given the um, you know civil rights strife in the in the marketplace and in the world right now, um, companies are hesitant to make these long-term commitments to something, and so we're talking with them about this notion of being agile. Can we think about very distinct selling motions that carry our brand message, our message of value, and point people in very specific places? We're finding a lot of sellers are are unsure and uncertain and hesitant, and 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 so being very prescriptive about go call on this buyer persona, go call on this type of person have this kind of conversation and not really make them parrot those things, but as much give them some good blocking and tackling guidance that people can coach and execute against um, versus these kind of abstract, you know, teaching somebody a methodology and then letting them decide entirely what to do with it on their own. Um, uh, we just think the world's changed. So yeah, well, I, and and actually, I kind of like the idea of blocking and tackling. If you're calling a play for the tight end, and you say on this play, if they've called this defense, this is the person you're going to have to go out and block. Mm -hmm. right. And so there's some situational awareness of what's the defense, but then when you actually go out and block, there is practice. And so no two interactions between you and that defender are going to be the same. And so. I can't dictate to you exactly how that conversation is going. I shouldn't script it, yeah. but I should give you the tools to say, you know, if he's going to try to do this move, then here's the counter move and uh, turn that into muscle memory so that the play goes right. But there is still a huge amount of execution uh, acumen on the part of the seller. Correct. And I think where traditional methodology shops probably get into a bind is they teach, you know, if we're using the, the football analogy, if, if you teach somebody all of the possible scenarios of the game and then let people decide what to go do on their own, you just don't get this kind of cohesion of activity. Um, and, and we're thinking, let's design the play and then really limit the I'll call it instruction down to, or the methodology down to, here are the, the here's some perspective and some th situational awareness you need to have, and maybe pivots you could possibly make in this play, but, but, but not you decide what route to run on your own, given your own situational, you know, everybody's, otherwise, none of the organizations in concert with each other and each individual seller is kind of running their own playbook. Yeah, and then that's, that's the ticket for chaos, um, rather than agility. And so actually, I've done a lot of writing uh, recently about agility, corporate agility, which I believe is going to be the competitive advantage for the 20s. Yeah, um, and it, it's housed primarily in the tech space, right? That's where you hear them talk about agility the most because they, they're very project-oriented and release-oriented in software development and things like that. But but I do think that'll cascade out to other or other parts of the organization. Yeah. I do want to make sure that, you know, we're, we're talking a little bit about the, the idea of customer value. And mm -hmm. um, when you're uniting sales and product and marketing, uniting them around the value, giving the product training, value and use type training in addition to the speeds and feeds. When you're 
having outcome-oriented marketing content that parallels the outcome-oriented sales conversations that you want to have. Where does that subject of value, when you're, when you're first engaging with a client, trying to figure out what their you know, big lift is going to be, where their big needle-moving change is going to be, where does value come up there? Yeah, well, I, 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 no surprise to anybody listening, the, the, the value discussion always presents itself um, when somebody puts a price tag on their product or solution. And so everything is, you know, I always say, you know, everything is, you know, rainbow, rainbows, cotton candy and unicorns when you're talking about a product or service. And then it comes to kind of this screeching halt when you put a price tag on it. Um, and when we talk with clients, you know, what, what they, they, they talk with us about getting stuck fairly late in sales cycles because of price, you know, and, and then we get into this kind of hard value versus perceived value. Um, and, and, and therein lies the conundrum and this notion of perception. Um, I had a client recently tell me, you know, that this, this isn't a religious experience. I can't have just faith that it's going to work out, (laughs) you know? So, so, you know, uh, and, and, and I think where companies miss it is they think there's some, there's some magic way to discuss it or talk about it late in the sales cycle to solve it. And I'm sure that you've, you know, I know from your own book and, and experience, Mark, you have a different opinion about where value gets, um, almost, I'll say even delivered, let alone where you start to create that perception of value. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say that value is something that only exists in your customer's mind because that's the only place where it gets weighed against your price. And those conversations about price happen very late in the customer's buying journey, but those perceptions are built much earlier. And if you don't build the perception earlier, then those that when the price discussion starts happening, it's too late to have built value because then it's just seen as a cheesy attempt to defend your price mm-hmm. rather than something that uh, a, a prospective client is going to have being built. And that graph that appears in my book, um, I actually was sitting in the audience with Rich Blakeman and he and oh. I kind of came up with that thought. Uh, where he said, Mark, you got I like what you're saying. Here's what here's what I heard you say in, in graphic form. You got to put that graph in your book. So, but you're you're absolutely right. You you've got to build that early. And in our negotiation, we you know we always tell our clients you you've started negotiating early. That negotiation doesn't happen doesn't start when your client starts acting like they're negotiating. It, correct. It correct. Happens. Often late in the sales cycle when we do get that pushback on value or perceived value, we find the seller or the selling organization starts scrambling for what are all the other ways this has value to it. And, and it looks, it looks very obvious and coerced from the seller, from the buyer's point of view. Yeah. I was lucky enough. I worked at this company, WL Gore, that they Mm -hmm. were, uh, it was corporate religion to understand your customer's business and to build that value early. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were salespeople who would, I would, I was in several sales calls with several different salespeople and some flavor of uh, sitting down with a design engineer saying, look, you know, 
we're going to be the most expensive thing you could possibly buy in this category. Why did you bring me in here? What am I even here for? Because you know I'm the most expensive. Mm-hmm. And then you'd get the customer to say, well, you know, I've tried to problem, solve the problem with other stuff. And this, this solution couldn't do this. And this one here couldn't do this. And I need somebody that, you know, I need to have a part that does both. Okay, what happens when you can't do both? Why, why do you need both? And right. Tell me about that. What's the outcome? And uh, one of the things I've always admired about you is like any great seller, you have that conversation and you have that conversation, not only that far, but you take it down that next question of, so if you can't do that, how much does it cost? What is the financial cost? Mm-hmm. And when the customer gives you that in dollars, now you're, you have prepared 100% for that late stage when the customer says, hey, this price is getting sketchy. Well, remember early on we said this and this was going to cost you. And in the words of the great Tom Lazaro, I'm proposing you a five-figure solution and you've got a seven-figure problem. Why are we talking about price? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great, great point. Yeah, I think oftentimes the justification, if you will, or the ROI, and not even ROI sometimes, because I don't really hear people, when people talk about ROI, I find it all over the map, but oftentimes it's trying to address a cost-based issue with the product versus an opportunity-based issue with a product. And, and I'll clarify what I mean by that. You know, what I mean, what I see sometimes is, you know, technology company will go sell their software and they'll say, hey, this tool, you know, will, um, your salespeople spend X amount of hours doing this, you know, task and our tool can automate that task. So we'll give your sellers, you know, two, three hours a week back in their schedule and your seller makes, you know, hundred bucks an hour. So times your thousand, you know, and they do all that kind of methyl math and say, look at this. And that's a cost base. My issue is what's the seller going to do with the three hours What's the opportunity cost, if you will, of what that seller, and there's where the perceived value starts to show up. So that's that hard versus soft dichotomy. Yeah. And, 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 and the tough part I find sometimes is that when we talk with clients around this issue, we almost always present a hard number, which is those three hours you're paying for and we, we can make them go away. Um, so there's some hard numbers you could definitely tie to that ROI is very low and not super attractive for the switching cost or change management effort to do it. So the issue then becomes the opportunity cost. And so an an analysis we just did with a client recently was what's, what, what, what did, you know, we, we got it down to what is the revenue yield for every hour the sellers talking or engaged with a customer. And so we did that kind of analysis and that gave us a more realistic kind of opportunity side of it. Now you get the client going, okay, if they could use those three hours to go engage with customers, then we think the yield might be better. You know, yeah, I, I think you're selling yourself short because the magic there is not that you did the exercise. The magic is that you got the customer to do their half of that exercise. Correct. So the number appeared in their heads. Yeah. If you had just given them that number, mm. the number wouldn't have stuck in their head. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, this is something over and over I've seen you do with client after client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you're an elite salesperson. And that, that's kind of what I was d- driven to me is that 
I can see the difference between that. I've, I've seen enough of the culture so that I, I know exactly what I'm looking at when I'm looking at you. And that is the practice of having a conversation with the customer mm-hmm. to get a very detailed Technicolor Dolby surround sound movie playing in the customer's head. Right. Because it doesn't matter what movie's playing in your head as the seller. Mm-hmm. The only thing that matters is the movie that's playing in the customer's head. Yeah, and I think I, think I, I appreciate the compliment you know, and, and it, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a simple paradigm shift in talking about value, but this, this idea of rather than the seller telling the buyer what the value is, is the simple ask of asking the seller, the buyer to, to, to talk back, Hey, based on what you've heard, what would that value be? Cause if they can't articulate it, then there isn't any, or they haven't, they haven't connected the dots yet. And me telling you over and over doesn't make you connect the dots. Yeah. And you know, that's the, that's the myth of the magic pitch. That's it. Absolutely. And uh, um, I got into a conversation with somebody who said, well, you know, storytelling is the new pitch. Okay. Because physiologically, when you, when you get, when you tell a story, it gets that movie playing dimly, in the customer's mind Mm -hmm. or it might get it brightly but you still have to ask a question to say how brightly did that movie show what when i told you this story tell me what you what you believe now what movie is playing in your head uh so a story without a confirmation question is just a uh trained a highly trained engaging pitch right yeah no question and 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 the the getting the customer to talk back to you about uh, the the conclusions they've drawn are almost always those implication questions, you know? And so the customer hasn't calculated or thought through the implications, um, you know, uh, then, then, then your price is going to always seem high. Yeah. It just Uh, is. Yeah. You've, you've heard me, you've heard me say in front of about a dozen and a half, uh, sales training courses, when your customer tells you your price is too high, I want you to act yeah. if you just, yeah. as if they said your value is too low. Yeah, now <laughs> this might be different in some industries where you sell competitive widgets and you can go to them and say their widget's $10 and mine's nine seventy-five. so my widget's cheaper. And long as it meets all the specs, maybe you're okay. Um, um, but even then, there's a whole gamut of value outside of just what the product is, you know, what are your your payment terms? What's your warranty? What's, what are your delivery and lead time requirements? We can go on and on about this, right? So. Oh, absolutely. And actually in a recent issue or recent episode, we talked about to a guy in the connector business, he's competing Mm -hmm. with a connector company uh, with connectors that met the relevant spec industry spec. Um, made in India, which were way cheaper than his, but his were more durable. They right. you could connect and disconnect. It's called mating cycles in that mm-hmm. industry. Um, both of them passed the spec, but his survived longer through many mating cycles in a product that needed that. And so uh, then he walked them through um, what is the cost of failure? And, and that meant he had to go at the customer and not talk to the design engineer anymore. He had to engage the reliability engineer and the tech support uh, leadership 
to increase the universe of the buying committee absolutely in his favor yeah um so to pick, to, to pick up those other points of value right exactly so understanding that there's a buying committee out there and you have to discover it is a great first step and contacting people is a great step but having the business acumen to say this differentiator is going to drive value into this organization that is currently not in the buying committee and now i've got to go out and recruit them and get them included in the buying committee that's um, that that's taking, as you said at the beginning of the conversation, that's taking the basic methodology and turning it into a playbook where you consistently win. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, so you're working with leaders, and so tell us about uh, what that means in terms of a, a sales culture, and what is the role of leadership and, and process and uh, in that. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that the culture you build makes it either easier or harder, creates headwinds or tailwinds against the plays that you're going to go try to run in your organization. And, and, and so um, if, if, you, if your culture doesn't kind of match up with your playbook, you're going to have some disconnect for sure. Um, but this idea of, you know, you know, one of the things I really, you know, really enjoyed about your book was the, the fact that you actually addressed this, this notion of creating a kind of value oriented culture. And, and, and I think that gets missed a lot because it gets to your point around the magic pitch. People think there's a tactic, if you will, that solves against that versus embedding that deeply within the culture. And so leaders who own the PL are typically most interested in that because if you own the PL value, a value-oriented culture is going to impact the P&L without yeah. question, right? Um, because we're just, we're basically talking about what the, you know, driving the average selling price in some fashion. And usually any reduction in price comes straight off the bottom line. There's usually very little variable cost that gets removed when you lower the price. Unless, yeah. you've, done, unless you've done something, you know, very elegant in terms of what you've traded for the reduction in price. So if you can trade something for the reduction price, wonderful. But what I found, you know, at least in, even in my own experience, is that the best salespeople have this keen awareness of the value that their products and services and solutions deliver. They, they understand it um, in a very tangible, visceral way. And, and subsequently, they're passionate in their advocacy. And it comes across. I just know in my own, you know, throughout my whole career, I've had clients say, Alvin, the, we're, we're going to buy, we're going to do this engagement with your firm simply because you, you are so passionate about it and so strong in your advocacy in a way that none of your competitors even comes across this passionate about or confident, if you will, about what your solution is going to do for us. And, and so, so, you know, all of your firms maybe have equal capability, but we'll go with you because the advocacy and passion and belief you have in, you know, in it. So, and, and that only comes from somebody, I, I, I think just from, from my observations of other great sellers is they've really thought through um, and understand how their solutions really impact the customer's business 
and and they and, and they can quantify that in a meaningful way. And so, um, the other thing is that that leaders, um, um, you know, cons who consistently talk about customer value, and and put good process checkpoints in place, um, um, so that. Um, so that those plays that I referenced earlier can be executed well, and we're ensuring that we're capturing some value, some perceived value along the sales cycle, you know, and, um, um, and, and those are real simple things, you know, in terms of leadership checkpoints to put in a playbook, to put in a selling motion that help, help leaders not, 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 and I'm not talking about coaching per se. I'm talking about real checkpoints in the sales cycle that say, "Hey, which buying influences or which stakeholders in this engagement have validated or shared their their perceptions of the value or impact thus far?" You know, because if that's not if that's not getting checked along the way, you're going to get dinged on the head when when the price gets presented. Yeah, and um, I maintain, and I would love to get your uh, agreement or disagreement on the fact that if you have done that and you've you've actually checked off against customer perceived value the entire way, your forecasts are much more accurate. You know what the customer is thinking, and you know how you already know how the customer is going to perceive your price against your value and you've been building value, which is building their buying momentum. So I, I think the forecasts get more accurate. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the linkage to building a good selling motion um, is, is a, a, a heightened awareness of how the customer buys for sure, you know, which is not a news flash to most people. Um, what, what, what we see in most clients right now, because we're talking about doing this in a much more agile way, is they have this broad sense of the buying process, but they really don't know how customers buy this product versus this solution versus this. For instance, they already buy a particular product, so they're looking at buying maybe a substitute for that product. That's different than, I don't own this at all, and I have to go, this is an incremental purchase for the firm. And that's a, that's a, there's, there's a different buying cycle between those two types of purchases. And I think a lot of times clients will have the same sales cycle or same pro sales process they execute, not thinking about something as simple as just, is this a replacement or is this net new? Cause if it's net new, there's going to be a, 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 a different uh, different drivers of perceived value in the discussion. Yep, absolutely. Well, um, we are running up against it. Is there anything else you want to uh, make sure that we talk about before we wind it up? You know, I, I think oftentimes when you get into this, this discussion of value, um, that there are challenges clients face in doing it, you know, and, and, and I think when clients are looking at trying to create this value oriented culture, um, you know, they, they got to look at one, they got to look at compensation systems. Um, sometimes they're not aligned around the value that the seller delivers. So they're tied to a sales number, maybe not a margin number, or, or they're not gated at least like you got to get it at least for this price, you know, or like I've got a client who, 
if the seller doesn't achieve at least this selling price, they'll get the number, they can sell it, but that, and, and they'll get paid their commission, but those dollars don't get attributed to retirement of quota, which affects their long-term bonus, right? So, so there's this combination. So some flexibility there. I, I mentioned this at the top of the conversation here, Mark, this, the siloing of the functions and roles and departments. Um, makes it tough because it, it splits things out. Um, I just mentioned this notion of the selling process being too generic and not specific enough, you know. Yeah. And then, and then you, something you and I've been passionate for a long time, kind of lack of process, coaching, and tools to execute a value-oriented sale, you know. And you 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 can't just you can't just make a declaration as a leader that you want value. You actually have to put a process in place and coach against it and have tools to drive execution against. So. I think that's the quote that we're going to be publishing on this. How can people get a hold of you, Alvin? They, they can, they can email me, which is easy. I'm Alvin L at Tactivity LLC. Um, they can find me at LinkedIn at, uh, Alvin LeBourgeois and, um, and, uh, and I'm pretty quick to respond if anybody has any questions or thinks I could help them and, uh, or if they just want to reference on you to make sure you're legit, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Alvin, thanks a lot, man. It's a great conversation. I'm thrilled to have had it with you. And uh, thanks everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where as we've been talking about, value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that your success in sales, marketing, and pricing is all in your customer's head. Thanks and go get some value clarity. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.